2: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
7: Solidarity forever!
1: Good morning, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. This is the last in the summer season of programming. We'll be live next week. Since it's the end of looking backward to last year and the beginning of looking forward to the important issues confronting us, in 2023, I thought I I would wind the two elements together by honouring a range of artists who passed on last year by playing tracks from their repertoire, as well as touching on a few contemporary issues. First on the issues side is, of course, the just-past-divisive January 26th Invasion Survival Australia Day. First we hear a word from Humphrey McQueen, who stars in a letter to the editor in the Canberra Times on the subject. We follow with a song from the recently departed Archie Roach and finish the subject with a report from the Change the Date Valley held in Devonport in Tasmania from our reporter on the spot, Don Sutherland. We will catch up with Don in the last half hour of the show when he talks to us about the significance of the fall in union membership recorded at the end of 2022. In between, we'll look at The Art of Incarceration, a film that profiles Indigenous prisoners who find a new way forward through art, and then we look at the fight for Gomorro land against fracking. Before we set off on today's program, let's remember Jet Black, the founding drummer of the great English band, The Stranglers, who died last year. The song, Always the Same. How
8: many times have you woken up and prayed for the rain? How many times have you seen the papers for the blame? But who gets to say? Who gets the work and who gets to? Everybody should get the same How many times have you been told If you don't ask you don't get How many lies have taken your money Your mother said you should bet Who has the fun Is it always a man with a gun Someone must have told him If you work too hard
1: with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. Last Thursday was a national holiday called Australia Day, which shows the bad taste of the colonial white power that runs Australia since on one hand it calls for unity of purpose while on the other it chooses to celebrate that unity on the day that saw the dispossession and attempted genocide of the original people. I was really taken by the letter that historian Humphrey McQueen found it necessary to write to the Campbell Times reminding a floundering ACT Attorney-General and Leader of the Greens in the Legislative Assembly in the ACT what the historical event, the day, is supposed to be commemorating since it implies that there is a sketchy knowledge generally about white Australian history despite the glorification of the colonial past. This is what Humphrey wrote. To the editor, the Canberra Times, that the ACT Attorney-General and the Leader of the Greens in the Legislative Assembly thinks that Australia Day is when Lieutenant Cook sailed past Sydney Harbour without noticing its existence is to be expected. More concerning are the implications of invasion to account for what did happen on January 26, 1788, eight days after Philip had come ashore in Botany Bay to find it barren. The settlement was not an invasion, but an incursion. The first fleet had been sent to set a refitting station en route to China. The British government and the East India Company, which held a monopoly over trade in the entirety of Asia and Australasia, feared that the Dutch... East India Company, with its powerful navy, would block access through the Malacca Strait. Britain and the Netherlands had been at war, on and off for decades. Among the imperial designs was access to China, not to buy its teas in exchange for Indian opium, as happened by force from the early 1830s, but to sell the Chinese millions of English processed goods. To that end, Lord McCartney led an embassy to Peking in 1792, loaded with gifts to be thanked and told to go away, since nothing Britain had to offer was of the least interest to the Celestial Court. All this and more had been made clear by the 1960s by the Tasmanian historian K.D. Dallas and collected in his Trading Posts or Penal Colonies, 1969. Jeffrey Blaney acknowledges his debt to Dallas in the tyranny of distance. Dallas also knew enough economic and naval history to know that the Admiralty would dump convicts when it needed them for all manner of public works, such as dredging the Thames, which is why they were on hulks. The value adding resource of convict labor was no longer sent to the United States as a punishment for rebellion. What happened in and around Sydney and then Hobart from 1803 were moves in the hundreds of years of warfare between Britain and France. Hence 1788 was an incursion as part of a blue water strategy. Invasion gets underway 25 years later as Britain emerges from the anti-French wars as the only great power, leaving aside the landlocked Tsarist Empire. Not that the above will have any place in an era of truth telling when the criterion will be, well, anyway, that's my story as to whether it was Cook or Philip who invaded on any date you can't remember from primary school. Humphrey McQueen.
5: In the river land Born of her mother Into her mother's hands and She was free As the river was wild She was so innocent Such a beautiful child
1: With Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on Three C R Community Radio. White Australians might have a sketchy idea of the historical background to Australia Day, but the First Nations people and their allies were quite clear about Survival Day Invasion Day when they gathered in Devonport, Tasmania on the twenty sixth of January, calling for a change of the date. They began with a welcome to country given by Daisy Allen.
9: Warintah tunapre pirinilaku, takra kuntanika pai buta, tunapre Palawanini ni putia lumbi, raichi mukana. Mine tangara, putia kanapila, makara kanapila. Wara, <rant> <laughs> ya yeah, hello, tulina welcome to Libeli Naturi, Devonport on Tulumina Kali. Mersey River, Aboriginal land, Palawa country. As we gather here on this tragic day, we remember and honour the Pirinilaku people who occupied this area prior to invasion and we acknowledge the Tasmanian Aboriginal community as the ongoing owners of Luchawita Tasmania. We thank (laughs) Our elders in particular, and all of us who, as individuals, families, and as a community, continue the legacy of our ancestors. It is with heavy hearts, Waranta Tamara, we mourn Invasion Day. We mourn for Waipa Rala, Luna Rala, our warriors who fought great battles protecting our land and our people. Here they fought, and here they fell. January 26 marks the day that Aboriginal lives were changed forever. British invasion and subsequent colonisation resulted in the complete destruction of Aboriginal society. Our land were stolen by force and deception. Our people massacred at the hands of the white people who committed human rights atrocities of the worst kind and attempted genocide. As we acknowledge and reflect on that together, celebration is not appropriate. It is extremely offensive and it is racist. Palawa Tasmanian Aborigines continue to fight now as our people did then. We put Wanapakalali Krala hard work into protecting and preserving our cultural heritage from further destruction. And we take pride in the revival of our language, Palawakani, Was, always will be Aboriginal you know, land.
7: Wow.
9: Thank you, my chief Karate, our white friends and supporters who have a sense of justice to stand alongside us today. Together, we will chip away at the government in. Sydney. On celebrating on January 26th and with your assistance and our ongoing persistence we will change the date
4: Next Scott Jordan. Thank you for the welcome. So, I've got a plan, folks, because what you can always rely on is there's a middle-aged white with plan. <laughs> so here's my plan. We're going to jump on some ships, we're going to sail halfway around the world and we're going to steal someone's land. We're going to murder them. Those we don't murder, we're going to to imprison. We're going to desecrate their cultural heritage. We're going to display their body parts in museums as trophies and curios. We're going to make sure that 235 years from now, the survivors of those people suffer worse health outcomes worse education outcomes, worse employment outcomes and are still dying in our journals. And then, we're going to have a national party. And every year we're going to have this national party and we're going to do it all over the country and the government's going to fund it. And if I came here today with that serious serious a plan, you would think I was mad. You would think I was some kind of psychopath. Yet that is the truth of what this country calls Australia Day. We still steal land. We still desecrate cultural heritage. We are still imprisoning Aboriginal people at a far greater rate than the general population and ensuring they're more likely to die in prison once they're there. This is not a cause for celebration. I WILL NOT CELEBRATE Australia Day. So the passion continues. What we want to do now is invite someone else who has played a big role in setting up today. A big role. Taking it upon herself with all that energy that she has because of her love for her people. Let's welcome Christelle Jordan.
10: Welcome to Limilinatoori, beside the Tullaminakali and under Tari Nimari, Mount Roland. Welcome. Firstly, I want to acknowledge all my Elders that are here today. All of them that come from far and wide. Um, Thank you, fellas. And obviously, I'd like to remember all of our warriors fallen. So here we go again. Australia, celebrating the birth of a penal colony on land violently stolen from the Aboriginal nations who lived in this land peacefully and in harmony for thousands of years. For Aborigines, like Scott said, on this day a great tragedy began to take place. One that is still unfolding today. It was the day that the invasion forces of the arrogant British Decided not to recognise that this country has a black history and over 65,000 years of culture. (laughs) Law and sovereignty and sovereignty that ties us to this land and our ancestors and that has never ever ever been ceded or extinguished. Some of these ongoing, disrespectful, arrogant views that can only be seen as showing a deep and irrational disdain towards Aborigines by successive governments and by state and national have ventured as almost voiceless. Almost! Not always, not entirely, but almost. <laughs> Rather than the celebration of the birth of a penal colony that becomes a nation on stolen land. This day is simply a stark reminder of the misery and devastation of my people and my country. My government continues with this yeah. bizarre idea that the Australian community is united in commemoration of a day which is truly a day of tragedy for the Aboriginal people, is morally indefensible. <laughs> sorry. It wasn't until 1935 that all Australian states called the, called the day Australia Day. And it was not until 1944 that it was officially established as a significant day in the Australian calendar. And yet, here we are, still celebrating, just to have a barbecue and a pizza. <laughs> so why is there such attraction to celebrating the arrival of a group of convicts, soldiers, unwanted by this country, and the land that was stolen, who went to commit many atrocities against Aboriginal people across this country, it's really hard to understand. We had high hopes for actions from the Albanese government when they came into power. However, they have now publicly stated that the government will not change the Australia Day date. This is from the man who is asking us to show goodwill and vote for a voice with little or no information that may be determined detrimental to Aboriginals across the nation. Where is his goodwill towards us? He needs to show national leadership in listening and supporting the Aboriginal community and change the day. Some time ago, Australia Day Council New South Wales made a statement that they needed to reflect on the impact of European sentiment for the First Nation Australians. The National Day is a time above all, sorry, for inclusion and respect, that it enables people to pause, listen, and gain a greater understanding of Aboriginal culture, heritage, and and as we work towards reconciliation. What absolute hypocrisy! (laughs) If people were truly going to respect, respect and celebrate our nation's past, which begun more than 65,000 years ago, the impact of the British invasion of Aborigines, then surely you would listen to Aboriginal people. We have views that need to be listened to and respected. Surely holding a celebration on a day of invasion and mourning defies all logic. It is my strongly held belief that a treaty informed of truth-telling and community input will change the political landscape of Palawa. Giving us a say and control over our own country and our own destiny, it will identify and eliminate the barriers that prevent the Palawa from achieving social and cultural equity in our own country. The local government that is starting to stand up and act in support of Aboriginal people, the level of government that is closest to the people, is listening and leading the way. And leading the way. We applaud firstly Limmy Devonport Council for choosing not to celebrate Australia Day. Um, we applaud the decisions made recently by councils including Glenorchy and Hobart. Who also chose not to celebrate Australia Day? Our Queensland Islands Council have also changed celebrations, and they are more inclusive and respectful. It is time for people to understand the true history of Australia one of invasion, massacres, genocide, dispossession, and continued discrimination against my people. The very notion that British could simply come and take our land, its resources, our culture, our lives, is just simply wrong. I think the moral well-being of Australia is poorer for its failure to come to terms with the true past of racism and the lack of progress in supporting my communities across Lutrawita in a positive way. It's time to change, and it's time to change (laughs) today. Papers
2: we're big The 26th of January 1788 This is truth We cannot hide away from the truth this round groundswell, it's bubbling up Discussions are happening in people's lounge rooms, around kitchen tables In houses and homes around this nation people are talking about truth telling Well truth telling starts with looking at our National Day of Celebration. One, which we are told is to include all of us. But an interesting fact, Australia is the only nation on earth, at least that I'm aware of, that celebrates its National Day on the day that marks the commencement and it's morally wrong. That's saying something. Australia, in its current incarnation, has a long way to go. And changing the date is a start. Tell you the hard work's being done. The highest court in this land has dispelled the myth of nullius. That happened two years prior to Australia Day being made a national holiday. It's accepted that this land was taken at the point of a gun. We know in classrooms around the country discussions are had about what the 26th of January means for Aboriginal people we know that there is a greater acceptance for not only listening to Aboriginal people, but taking on board our acceptance and suggestions for change. And yet here we are, marching the streets against this divisive day. It hangs around like the relic of racism and brutality that that all of us here are determined to quash. So,
11: yes, changing the date
2: is a small step. And yes, there are many, many pressing issues that deserve our attention. But changing the date, although a small gesture, is hugely symbolic. It is a welcoming embrace from white Australia. But let's face it, it's 235 years overdue. It is a signal that finally our part in this nation's story, as difficult and bloody and violent as that party is, is no longer going to be swept under the carpet. The very debate around changing the date is a text of all Australia's moral consciousness. It is a step towards accepting Aboriginal people. It is a step towards giving us the status that we deserve as human beings, as an important part of this nation's future. It signals that our experience and our stories are both fundamental and equally important to what the future Australia will hold. It is a welcoming, that for us to share in the bounty created on and from the land which was so brutally ripped from us and a recognition of what aboriginal people all around this country have sacrificed to allow the nation australia to grow into what it is today <laughs>
4: Uh, travel all the way to Nipaluna to be here, let's welcome Dwayne Everett Smith. <laughs> the two, I'd, I'd like to uh, pay my respects to my elders, my ancestors, for the constant fight, many years of fight to have us here today. And I'd also like to welcome our community and the allies supporting us today. I'd like to add to the message of Uncle Jimmy, a message to our elders of reassurance and commitment with conviction, but also a message to the system to say that you can build your buildings, you will not drown us out. You can have your cricket in the background, but you will not drown us out. You can change the policies, you can change the legislation, you can change the wording, but you will not drown us out. Because us young people, our spirit cannot die. And we will keep going for you. And we will keep fighting the long fight. You've been here for 60,000 years. We'll be here for 60,000 more. Yeah. Talk about the weather, call that Australia day. I said, hey.
0: celebrate anything but survival nah you watchin' telly for the bachelor but wouldn't read a book about a fuckload load of massacres i remember all the blood and what carried they remember 20 recipes for lamingtons yeah their ancestors got a boat ride both minds saw them coming until they both died fuck celebrating days made of misery why i still got the black history and that shirt will get you banned from the parliament if you ain't have
1: You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. That was the specials with a message to you, Rudy, remembering the passing of Terry Hall, frontman for the specials. We were listening to the speeches given at the Change the Date rally in Devonport on the 26th of January and we are now going to hear a chat I had with filmmaker Alex Siddon. In July, about his film *The Art of Incarceration*, focusing on Indigenous prisoners at Fulham Detention Centre and their road out through art. You say it's a humble film, but um, you what you what you've done is, uh, you see, we see through the eyes of Indigenous prisoners at Victoria's Fulham Correctional Centre, right? Um, now that's actually not an easy thing to do. So, uh, how did this project come about?
6: Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it came about... I just um, started making short films, um, just documentaries about people I'd met, us um, after to avoid having visions of it, and then I sort of wanted to do a feature, and I became very interested in this issue and this absolute, you know, humanitarian crisis surrounding Indigenous incarceration about, you know, 2015-ish, and thinking there wasn't much film or, you know, documentary or literature or whatever around it. Um, and then soon after, I met Robbie Waramanda who had recently been released from the prison sentence. And um, he's quite a striking and uh hulking presence himself, you know, former super heavyweight world champion fighter and 160 kilos of tribal tattoos etched across his uh, neck and hands. And I striked up a friendship with him and he went on to become one of my best friends and a father figure and a mentor. And we spoke about the project and he'd been doing art inside prison through the Torch program. Um, so that pushed us in the direction of this film being a possibility and then I was given permission through a very long process to go into Fulham and speak to the inmates and um, it was there that I met Christopher Austin who was the elder in the unit and one of the other lead subjects and he sort of, the screws took me up to him and I walked through the whole prison which was pretty hardcore experience and I got there and Chris told me to have a seat and we had a bit of a yarn and he was really supportive of the film and the boys getting to tell their stories and um, then called in, uh, you know, 30 prisoners and I spoke to the group and then we organised the screening of some other films just so they could get a feel for who I was and what my work was like. And um, it really happened from there, to be honest. So I suppose to answer your question succinctly, it was really about friendships, you know, friendships and amazing connections and mutual respect and desire to connect and tell this story.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it comes across that way uh, because... uh uh i was really taken by i mean like look at the statistics um uh three you you actually start the film off with that 3% of the population is, uh, is actually indigenous australian but they account for 27% of adult prison population and indigenous youth 55% of young people in detention and that takes us back to something that really came out to me which was that because they uh uh there's a whole generation of Indigenous male children who have been incarcerated for being unruly children, and th- basically that's the, and then left without with a long trek into uh, prison at, without any skills for for supporting themselves.
6: Absolutely, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's uh oh, it's harrowing, and um, I mean. The stories I would hear only reinforce not only the injustice, but the absolute brutal reality uh, and the institutionalisation, you know, which, which we're alluding to. Um, you really do see that um, I feel from what I observed and what I was told firsthand, the inmates lose their confidence, their ability to participate in society and feel like a contributing member of that society upon release. So it's a bit of a game that, you know commit offence and come back and in prison. They've got somewhat of a community and somewhat of a structure and as brutal as it is, you know, through their pure strength, they can survive in there more so than what is perceived on the outside. So it's just that tragic perpetual cycle. And um, through the subject of Chris Austin, who is another great friend of mine, we really do see the breaking of that cycle. Um, Chris had been in the system had just turned 12 and he was sent to Parkville for being uncontrollable. Yeah, in
1: inverted commas, it's called uncontrollable. It's yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah.
6: <laughs> I remember when he told me that, and it was just a bit of a pause, and I obviously didn't want to offend him, but it was obviously, you know, i just met him, and I was in his cell, and then weren't many screws around. It was pretty intense, and I was sort of, could you elaborate on that, sort of uncontrollable? Because, you know, being a non-indigenous man myself, I was like, you know, how can you be locked up for being uncontrollable?
1: Uncontrollable, but yeah.
6: He just said um, if you went to court once or twice, that was the term they put you in there, made you water the state being uncontrollable. Mm. And, I mean, wow. And that's that's common of his generation as well. And he ended up serving, you know, I think it was 37 years. uh, The longest he spent on the outside, nine months, from the age of 12 to 38, I think it was, or 48, sorry, 12 to 48, the longest was nine months in society. So how can the system be... Working or productive or intuitive to growth, if you know that's the numbers that have been presented through, you know, through Chris's life story. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 tragic.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is tragic and uh, uh, and common. That's the worst of it. I mean, it, it's calculated.
6: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it really was common for a lot of the um, a lot of the artists in there. They are you know, obviously the widest participating in the program to have been to have been to um, Parkville or Malmesbury or another youth detention, you know, maybe New South Wales or wherever wherever they may have been. Um, so I think it was actually very common. I think there was only a couple of the boys in there who I spoke to who hadn't been to Juvie. So I mean, that's a that's a harrowing story, and there needs to be so much more done for young offenders, and especially when you hear their stories and there's all those you know common variables of, unstable housing, you know, lack of mentorship, guidance, yeah. you know, minor offences. Minor offences. Minor well, offences, then jail time, institutionalisation, and then the offences grow, and, yeah. and they grow. And yeah. it's not good for the society, and it's not good for the individual, and it's, it's um, something that we need to change. And you know, I hope this story, in a small way or maybe even a big way, can um, push that momentum and that energy and that perception forward.
1: There's a quote, uh, Chris, Christopher is attempting to forge a better future, and this is his quote. In the past, I was a crook, you know, a jailbird, but now I'm an artist. My daughter is so proud of that. I never used to think of myself that way. I, it's just so, just says it all, really, doesn't it?
6: Yeah, it does. I remember um, Christopher, one of the first times I spoke to him, he spoke about doing art for the first time in the unit. You know, obviously facilitated by the torch and their amazing work. And he, he was saying that he felt uncomfortable when people were saying that they like his art. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I was pretty confused. He was, like, I didn't know what he was trying to say. He was saying, oh, you know, when people say they like your art and that, it's a bit weird, you know? I was like, what do you mean? And now we joke about it. He was really saying that he felt awkward getting a compliment. Upon, right. You know, getting some encouragement because yeah. he'd never, never experienced anything through his, his wife and I thought, you know, if you compare that to my own white existence of being educated and the other side of the spectrum of fortune, I just could not believe that and we laugh about it now we you know, in good grace and, and and good taste and um but yeah, I think that says it all. Yeah.
1: Back with Annie on 3C R Breakfast. We were listening to Public Image to mark the passing of Keith Levine, who was a co-founder of The Clash, as well as Pill, Public Image Limited. Filmmaker Alan Sidden was talking to us about his film, The Art of Incarceration, and now we hear from the Grimroy people who are fighting against Santos gas project on their lands outside the native title tribunal in Sydney.
0: There have been important times in Australian history when the First Nations people on the ground have said, this is sacred land, we don't want it dug up. And it has been trade unions together standing together and say, if the real owners of the land say no, we will not work on this project. We will not lift a finger on this project. I'm talking about nook and bar. I'm talking about the uranium mining policy that stopped Mary Kathleen and other uranium mines, where workers actually stopped work to stop those uranium mines. War Stop work to block the shipment of uranium. That is the power we need to build, comrades. That is the power we need to build. And we have a statement that we're all promoting together. You can go on the website, gomeroynar.org. That means Gomeroi Strong. And I'll just read a little bit from it for you. It says, instead of gas-fired dispossession... We urgently need to be strengthening First Nations rights and investing heavily in a just transition away from fossil fuels with large-scale employment in renewable energy and sustainable development. This project cannot be allowed to proceed. And if the Native Title Tribunal will not defend Gomorrah rights, then we pledge to support a fight that will stop Santos and Perreté on the ground. That's the commitment we make. And we now have, as endorsements to this statement, All of the education unions here in New South Wales, the teachers, the NTU, my union, right? We have. The Electrical Trades Union have endorsed that statement. The Construction Division from the CFMEU have endorsed that statement. The Maritime Union have endorsed that statement. The United Workers Union have endorsed that statement. Amnesty International have now endorsed that statement. Human Rights Law Resource Centre and many other human rights organisations. So we are growing in power. We are growing in power, and if Santos think they're going to get away with this, they have another thing coming. Yeah. Our next speaker, a young Gomeroy woman, there's a youth group, Gamilaray Next Generation, that really put this on the map. The first time I really realised how serious this issue was, was when they called a demonstration here in Sydney after the initial approval, and it's been wonderful to see the resistance continuing to come from young people. So Tallulah Brown has a statement to read for us today. Thank you.
3: <laughs> Jez, um, we are one of the many founders of GNG who are fighting against Santos, and I have a statement that I'd like to read from Ian Brown, uh, another member and Gomorroa person who uh, isn't here today. So I'm going to read this statement out for you. Yama, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge country from Gomorroy to Gadigal, and thank the Gadigal mob for allowing us to hold this rally today. I pay my respects to the old people who have cared for this land since the first sunrise. I pay my respect to our elders, both past and present, knowing that without their strength and knowledge, we would be weakened in our defense of country. I'd also like to acknowledge our youth, the future leaders, and the reason why defending country is so important, to ensure that their inherent rights to remain connected to place, to country, and culture is protected. I'd also like to acknowledge our comrades and allies who have supported Gomorrah throughout this fight since the project's initial inception and who continue to stand alongside Gomoray like those speaking here today. I'd like to apologize for not being there in person as I am back home on country, but I'm there in thought and spirit. You all are gathered to deg- sorry, today to stand in solidarity with Gomoray against the Narrabri Gas Project and Santos who are seeking to a future acts determination within the native title tribunal. Essentially an act extinguish our native title rights. Shame. In affected areas of the piliga Santos are utilizing the legal systems to do exactly what it was meant to do. Further dispossess First Nations mob. The piliga is a place to which hold cultural significance to Gomorrah mob. It is a place which provided sustenance for our mob by an abundance of readily available flora and fauna, but it was and is still a place which holds cultural knowledge and ceremonial significance not only for Gomorrah, but neighboring nations as well. Allowing this project to continue will have a direct impact on our ability to continue cultural practices within the Piliga and will disrupt any further cultural revitalization occurring on Gomorrah, which is something we cannot allow. This project also runs the risk of contaminating our great artesian basin, one of the largest underground freshwater sources in the world which provides a number of communities throughout New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and the Northern Territory with fresh water. Water is a part of country, therefore we have the obligation to protect it. We cannot drink or eat money. The fossil fuel industry and the politicians which govern this penal colony, so-called Australia, need to acknowledge the responsibility that we have to protect country as we cannot continue down this destructive path. Instead, they are ignoring the pleas from mob and environmental experts to pursue short-term monetary gains at the expense of current and future generations. This is significant hearing relating to the native title and Aboriginal rights to lands within New South Wales. If a decision to allow a project to go ahead is made, it sets a precedent which could impact on other nations' native title claims due to the infrastructure needed to support the project. So we need all nations to come together and support us in this campaign. This is the first instance where a specific report, scientific report relating to climate change and the impact a gas project will have on the atmospheric environment was included as evidence. Gomorrah have said no. Us, us as traditional owners have said we do not want the Narrabri gas project on our country. So now it's time for Santos to yane and to get the hell off our country. Yalu.
1: you with Annie on the last of the summer season for Solidarity Breakfast. We have just been revisiting the live issue of the Santos incursions on Gomoroi land with over 800 drills into the Artesian Basin for gas reserves. In the final piece for today, I caught up with Don Sutherland to get his take on the reports at the end of 2022 of an historic low in union membership.
7: In mid-December last year, the Australian Bureau of Statistics produced its latest data on union membership and that data showed a a continuing decline so that at the present time uh union membership uh, total union membership uh, is at 12.5 percent for full-time workers it's a bit higher at 13.3 which means obviously part-time workers is about 10.8 percent now this is pretty dreadful uh, and the fact that it deteriorated Uh, over the last two years is consistent with the longer-term pattern. Um, uh, When the ABS released the data, it traced the pattern back to uh, 1992. In fact, it was well established before that. There are some data that shows that the decline in union density started in 1978 when the Fraser government introduced its anti-solidarity laws, sections 45 D and E, of the Trades Practices Act that made illegal workers acting in solidarity with each other across work sites and across industries. So it's a longer-term trend. And the current generation of union leadership are proving to be as incapable of all the previous ones to work out what needs to be done about it. That's, in a sense, the crisis has two dimensions. There's the raw numbers, And then really there's the lack of vision uh, that is required to work out just what it is that will begin to turn the situation around.
1: Because there's a common belief that with the uh, reduction or the change in the industrial landscape away from uh, major industrial work sites, that that was uh, the beginning of the uh, end of uh, large membership numbers. Is, is that a contributing factor, the fact that our work, the landscape has changed?
7: It may be a contributing factor. I think there's a number that interact with each other and that may be one of them. You see, the rise in, when union density has rise, the big increases in the early part of the last century and so on, you know, most workplaces were small. Ah. Um, and yet union density increased then. Now, of course, it is still a different landscape. So there is some sort of issue there. But there, is, there are others, and one of them is, of course, how, well, it's a subjective thing, I know, uh, but one of them is indeed well, what uh, a strategy does a union uh, leadership, those who are responsible for the health of the union movement from a leadership level, you know, what is their strategy? Although we saw some elements of a strategy between about 1988 and 1994, that has since started to fall apart and then fell apart except for a brief period in the context of the struggle against Howard's um, workplace bargaining laws.
1: Yeah,
7: workplace. Yes.
1: So what you're saying, I guess, would be that the people's consciousness of the value of collective action was enhanced by that attack. Uh,
7: Yes, not to the degree that would uh, develop a permanent reversal of the decline, but certainly one that, started to create the knowledge and awareness of what the possibilities might be. In my view, the most serious thing, and you can see you can see the timeline association if you look closely, is that in the more recent period, it's the emergence of a non-combative strategy. Ah, mm-hmm. um, this year is the anniversary of the Accord, of course, in 1983, so it's going to be a lot more discussion about this uh, in the ranks of progressive and socialist organisations and broader than that one would hope, including right through the union movement. But the, um, I think there is slow, slowly the small C communist and capital C communist influence in our union movement, which was never a dominant influence. It was influential to a degree that was significant, but never dominant. But to the degree that it existed, that coincides with a combative part of the union movement that would generate major campaigns. And some of them would then be translated into gains for the whole of the working class. And that has been lost. And that loss, so it's associated with the disappearance almost of a small C communist, capital C communist, because it was a communist party of Australia and so on. And uh, a lot of their people were active at all levels of the union movement and very influential in their own way. And then there are others who were of a small C, that is not in the CPA or anything like that. And they created this combativeness, this willingness to stand up against the employers yep. and uh, and pursue a sort of uh, what was called in the 1970s and 80s, a mindful militancy that would have big impacts. There was always debate about this. It wasn't by all means easy. But persuading those workers who had more bargaining power and were on higher wages to accept that they should adapt their strategy to ensure that there were effective flow ons to those workers who are on the lower reward rates and so on. It was called a wages of solidarity strategy. It was pursued both in a mindfully militant way, starting in workplaces and industries, but then it was also built into what was required and forced into the movement by the requirements of conciliation and arbitration in the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission.
1: But what strikes me is that what you're talking about is is the effect of culture, a cultural shift.
7: Yeah, I think that that's that's one way of putting it, yes, yes. Uh, you see the combative mentality it's almost it's almost like um well a good example today is today in today's financial review we have the national secretary of the australian manufacturing workers union steve murphy yeah. who is who was one of the more visionary thinkers there's, there's the few are still there he's running the argument about the proposal that surfaced after these horrible numbers came out in mid-december to introduce uh, statutory bargaining fees so that unions would get, and union members would get some uh, benefit out of uh, bargaining that uh, the results of which would flow on to non-members. So it was all about bargaining fees, but he's, it's, written in the, it's written in the financial review and it's written addressed to employers. and it's asking, And it's asking employers to be more cooperative more co- to cooperate more with the union movement and accept and accept this proposal. All right. So it's almost as though we're apologising. We're apologising for pursuing uh, an agenda, and there is no combativeness in that. No. You know, we turn from to- asking the Labour Party to solve problems for the working class to asking the employers to help solve the problem by being agreeable
4: yeah. to
7: uh, the introduction of bargaining fees. Yet the, the employers have got us where well, They're very happy with where they've got us at the moment.
11: Yeah, I'm sure density, they are.
7: Yeah. They're, they're delighted. They're de- they'd like it to go lower, of course, because they're never satisfied. Um, so uh, I, I, I fail to understand. See, bargaining fees uh, 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 may be a very good idea, um, uh, well, probably a good idea within the, within the framework of the strategy. And there's nothing in this in this plea, this rather sad plea in some ways, for employers to be more cooperative. There's nothing there about a strategy. Now that might not be such a bad idea that we don't advertise what the strategy might be, but uh, and there may well be one being cranked up. But goodness me. Uh, you'd have to go looking with uh, tweezers um, <laughs> through the mattress to find out where it might be. Might
1: yeah, well, well, that leads me to uh, look at the uh, approach that was to have bigger unions, continually bigger unions and what that means in terms of the uh, landscape for membership organisations such as the unions. Like, what's going on with the uh, United Workers' Union that uh, represents such a vast array of different types of workers?
12: Well,
7: union amalgamations, in my view, are relative. They're they're not wrong in principle. Hmm. But most Australian union amalgamations have been uh, pursued in substitute for developing a strategy. So uh, on this occasion, I mean, there's other unions talking amalgamation at the moment. So it's almost like this is why I really worry about the strategic thinking capacity at the moment. I I would love to be proved wrong about this. But you see, as soon as you turn to a union amalgamation, there is no evidence that union amalgamations on their own reverse union density problem. None. Well, clearly,
1: obviously, it, it and clearly hasn't. there's no has
7: evidence been. that bargaining fees are going to do it either. And um, I, you know, if I'm wrong about this, terrific. I'd like to be, but well, I do Well, uh, actually, power. logically
1: speaking, Don, it doesn't make any sense to uh, panda uh, go to the opposition, oppositional power, and say, "Let me have a little bit of your your power, um, so that I can keep going." Unless you look at the um, old uh, evidences that came out of places like Germany that showed that uh, different workplaces succeeded in profit better when they negotiated using uh, with, with union representation on their boards, etc. There's, there's uh, evidence of that, isn't there?
7: Well, there's contradictory evidence about all of that and um it's mixed up with other things as well, including the composition the class composition of the German working class in which is in which there has been massive migration and real really serious problems with huge wage differentials associated with that, and so on so i don't really I, I, I think the thing we've got to do is focus on um you know what is feasible in the current situation.
1: the reason why I brought it up was why would they think why would someone ask the employers to have a fee uh, arrangement for um, negotiations? What's what's in it for the employer? Why would they do that?
7: Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it's, it, that's why that's why I worry that it just appears so sad. And it's just, <laughs> in, in, I might say it's not like the usual Steve Murphy, so I just don't know what's going on there. But you see, the thing is, one of the worst in crises is in terms of inequality and over the same period we had the Oxfam report which showed that country by country as well as globally how much inequality was getting worse yep. including in australia yep. and we have a bigger and bigger proportion of the australian working class whose standard of living is defined more and more by the annual wage review now the annual wage review of course the rules around the annual wage review are broken although this year's annual wage review will be the first one in which closing the gender pay gap uh, becomes a permissible issue to be addressed in the review process so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds so we have a rising inequality what's going on with low wage those on the minimum wage and those on the lowest rates in the award system is that there's bigger numbers of them, and also the number of workers who are sort of de facto individual agreements in which they're paid a couple of dollars above the minimum rates just to keep them away from a union. That's the scene there. So the annual wage review is actually a very big deal. And yet the current strategy says pay lip service to that.
1: I suppose they're acting as if the uh, low pay are not the majority.
7: Yeah, and my hunch is they're not being organised into unions. And is there a relationship between the two things, that we pay lip service in terms of our industrial effort, our our current union activist effort? We pay lip service to the annual wage review and we're not attracting young people and we're not attracting people who are on low incomes. So that's the first element of the current strategy. The second element is, of course, enterprise bargaining as the dominant method of seeking to get wage rates above the minimums. And what we know about that is two things. Firstly, it's not working because the gap between the lowest levels in awards and enterprise agreement wages is narrower, even though union agreements are better than non-union agreements. And the second thing we know about that uh, apart from the fact that it's not working, is that it's not attracting new members. The third element is, in terms of you know trying to unite what's left of the union movement, uh, is par- what I call parliamentary unionism. The dominant mentality in our union movement is that the big problems that we face relative to the law, for example, can only be fixed through pleadings and negotiations and consultations with the Labor Party, now that it's in government. In other words, get the Labor Party elected and then go into a negotiation consultation process and get them to make what we hope will be better laws that will enable us then to go on and attract new new members into the union movement. If anything, these latest union density numbers show that three element strategy, parliamentary unionism, enterprise bargaining, And lip service to the annual wage review is not working.
1: You think that they're the nub of the problem and that that's going to be the point where uh, change will have to uh, come from.
7: The reality is that's the strategy at the moment. Overall that's what it's all about. What
1: do you think should be the strategy? What we
7: know for sure is it's not tackling inequality and secondly it's not tackling uh, the problem of union density.
1: No, it's not. And
7: union union power is constricted without strong union density, without growing union density.
1: I mean, I know that there's efforts to raise awareness using social media and uh, um, other forms of media to uh, uh, tackle the lack of youthful awareness of what a union really is, for example.
7: Yes, yes, and, it, and, it, and it's all bound up with, you know, a little bit of um, union education here and there which is based on the Americanised um, or so-called organising model. Yes, yes. Yeah. But there are serious problems with making that the sort of way in which we, you see, you run a recruitment course to solve a decline in union density. Well, yes, you do need to do that. It's not in itself, especially applied discreetly, it's not in itself going to solve the problem. I've run courses like that, and you you just know when you're talking to experienced organisers in those courses, they've worked that out. They know that from their own experience that what they're learning about how to talk one to one with a non-union member is it not in itself going to be a silver bullet. It's right. a bit like so. It's a bit like the other two silver bullets we talk about. You know, so there's little bits of the jigsaws that are all useful in their own way, but. We we like desperados. We grab hold of one here and another then, and uh, we look at a next one for tomorrow and so on. Without working out, yet the strategy that works is staring us in the face, and that is running a campaign that actually addresses one of the most serious problems facing, uh, especially younger workers, and that's low incomes and insecure jobs. Yeah. That's right. And so the incomes problem starts with defying the broken rules of the annual wage review and reapplying the good tactics and skills and tools associated with online organising used in parliamentary unionism, and reapplying it into a mass education process associated with the annual wage review that reaches into the hearts and minds of, of younger workers. Uh, and that one, and that means that more, experience, more experienced workers who have been around unions for a while will latch onto that and they will be a lot more helpful and effective in what they can contribute to rebuild uh, our union movement. We can't go on with the current strategy. Those three big elements to it are a failure, and they need to be replaced by something that is more combative. How you get more combativeness without small-c communist influence is a moot point. There are so many other problems. Union credibility around other issues, which are essential for unions to really be making a contribute to the climate crisis and the threat to the planet, for example. That is a very big deal, and some of the things that unions in Australia have been doing are really terrific. But the, the reach and strength and uh, impact of, of those union efforts are constrained by where union density is at the present time. Uh, we could go also to um, the struggle over uh, against racism in the context of what's going on with the voice at the moment. Unions have a proud history. We've also got a ratty history in some areas as well. The left of the union movement in particular has got a proud history in fighting racism acting in solidarity with our, our Aboriginal peoples. It's going to be important in the context of the voice uh, debate that's going to go on this year as well. So, But union density being so low, it's us vulnerable to be rendered marginal. That's really the big strategic question our union movement has to face. The bigger the annual wage review increase, then the better is the flow-on effect for the age pension, and I think also the disabled pension. But it's a big deal about uh, the equality issue uh, as it impacts upon the whole of the working class.
1: Yeah, and the whole fabric of society.
7: So the, the only thing I, I would add, perhaps to finish off, is that it, mixed up in all of this, of course, is that the employers are on a lot of this. I mean, they are really building up to be uh, extremely difficult on a number of fronts. And you've already got the Reserve Bank Governor swinging behind them mm. to support uh, a wage cut at the annual wage review. Unbelievable. That's already happening. That's what, that's what the Australian Industry Group and the other employer organisations will be looking for. Uh, we, we can either just do the same old, same old, or we adopt a totally different approach. That's where we need to go. We need to go to a totally different approach, knowing that the employers are going through our throats. 'Cause they
1: are. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We have been talking with Don Sutherland about the record low union membership figures recorded at the end of 2022. We went to Davenport for the Change to the Date rally on the, January the 26th. We revisited the film Art of Incarceration available on Netflix and reminded people of the ongoing fight to protect Gumuro land from Santos Narrabri Gas Project. We're going to go out with a a track from Mabel John, the first female singer to be signed to Motown. She passed away in 2022, but as with all great musicians, gone but not forgotten. I
11: don't have to beg you to hold me Cause somebody else will You don't have to love me when I want it somebody else will about to come to an end The real good thing Is about to come to an end All those nights I watched the four walls I did not have to watch them all alone and said they wanted me. I didn't have to tell them I was your home very own. You had all the love I've got. Even I smell to water and get I Look out, your good thing is about to come to an end. about to end Getting myself back together Is gonna be a big problem I know But when the right man say he wants me You can bet I won't say is about to end your real your good name your good thing baby You're good thing your good thing is about to